0: Thank you, Dan, for leading for us so far this evening and to the musicians and singers uh, for helping us so far. We're going to try and cover three chapters of 1 Kings. So I would appreciate it if you joined with me to pray that God would help us with that. Uh, Solomon is granted God's wisdom. uh, And I would have thought our prayer this evening is, is that we too have some of, of, of the wisdom and insight that, that only God alone can can bring. So let's pray.
1: Father God, we thank you for
0: this uh, truth in your word that, that you know all things and that you are completely wise. Thank you too that when we humble ourselves and come before you, when we acknowledge that we don't know it all, that we have, have much to learn that you then graciously come and and give your wisdom to us. We pray that you would do that this evening in these next moments around your word. Amen. If you're around Christian people or in churches for long enough, eventually you'll hear people in the community talking about God in in pretty impressive-sounding language that's quite unknown to you at first. You'll hear words that you'd never, ever hear anywhere else. Words like predestination or dispensationalism. They're words that are hard to say, never mind even understand. These words belong to a language that only a privileged few ever really become conversant in, uh, the language of profound theology. Well, If you're in a place where that kind of language is spoken, you'll not be there too long before you hear the word sovereignty. People talk about the sovereignty of God. It's a Christian belief that God is the king of the the created order and that he is therefore in control of creation. In my view, it's not so important that we know all of these impressive sounding words. I think you can be a faithful Christian without ever talking about the sovereignty of God. It is important, though, I think, that we understand uh, what lies behind uh, these words. We understand that God is king and that he really is in control. Folks, I don't know about you, but it seems to me it's much, much easier to say that than to live it. But actually, in the end, we have no choice because God is sovereign. He does rule. He is in control, not only in our personal affairs, but but throughout the, the entire cosmos. Eugene Peterson says that God rules not only in our times and places of worship, but in office buildings and factories, in universities and hospitals, even behind the scenes at pubs and in rock concerts. Now that might seem like a, a crazy notion to you or to me, but it's precisely what what Christian people down through the ages have always believed. God rules. God is in charge. Now you wouldn't think it to look at our lives it seems to you and to me that we're controlled by many other things other than God Um, it might be the credit crunch it might be that we feel that we're at risk from uh, mad dictators on the axis of evil there's little evidence sometimes that God is the one who's who's pulling the strings and yet generation after generation of God's people have, have affirmed just this fact Um, We've seen it a lot in the songs that we've sung here this evening. One of the commonest titles that we give to God and to Jesus is the title King, Ruler. God is in control. So how are we going to learn to live in this world where it feels as though God isn't in control and many other things are? How are we going to live in this world, the reality that God is in control? How are we going to do that? Well, for one thing, uh, we'll read the scriptures. We'll, we'll do that thing that we've been talking about here over these summer months in our evening services. We'll begin to eat this book, this, this Bible that's before us. We'll begin to, to take it in in such a way that it shapes our imagination it shapes our, our behavior much more than the nearest magazine or the next news bulletin. We'll begin to allow God to tell us the truth about the world. And it's for this reason this evening that I am inviting you to, to join me in a, in a series of studies in the book of Kings. It's a great place to learn how to live under God's sovereign rule. Uh, I've chosen to, to start this series at this point in our church life because we've just finished a series over the summer in our morning services on the life of David and uh, you may know that the Kings just flows on and continues the story that began in first and second Samuel, uh, much of which deals with the life of David. The story of kings well the, the story of first and second Samuel tells. That there was a moment in the life of God's people, Israel, where they came to God and they said, we want a king. Uh, And it's quite clear in the biblical narrative that, that that wasn't God's idea. That that was the people's idea. But since they insisted God gave them what they want. But God never handed over his kingship, his sovereign rights over his people. Whenever Israel had a king, the idea was always that Israel's king would rule under God. So the measure of any king in Israel is how effectively they rule under God, how effectively they represent God's rule to God's people. Now, I don't want to give it all away before we start a a series like this, but I can tell you that it didn't really ever work very well in Israel they had kings for about 500 years some 40 or more kings and really they probably ended up worse off than when they started even the bright spots of Israel's kings that's guys like David and Hezekiah and Josiah they're not very bright there's a lot of flawed uh, humanity in them So it turns out that human beings, no matter how well-intentioned they are, never do a very good job of representing God on this earth. We always get in the road and we always mess it up. So we're going to see that in the book of Kings, and I better warn you of that. In a sense, it's going to look a bit like a catalogue of failure, but we're going to see much, much more in, in the book of Kings. And this is the kind of thing that we want to to learn to look out for. We're going to see God at work. We're going to see God at work in in a real mess here. We're going to see that despite uh, people being openly rebellious, being flawed and sinful, God doesn't discard them. God doesn't bypass them. God uses them. They're part of his sovereign rule, whether they know it or not, and whether they want to be or not. Again, Eugene Peterson, he claims that the book of Kings provides a premier witness to the sovereignty of God carried out among some of the most unlikely and most uncooperative people who ever lived. Folks, in the end, I think this is good news. Why? Well, if we can, if we can be sure that God works Even when the leaders in our churches and in our communities are flawed, broken, and entirely off the rails, then I think we can relax. We can trust that somewhere God is still in control, despite all evidence to the contrary. This is the kind of thing that we're going to learn together in our studies in Kings. We read Chapter three, and in a sense, it's, it's the best known of the first three chapters, but I want to spend a few minutes uh, skimming through chapters one and two to, to build up a, a bit of a context for the, the more famous chapter Three. When the narrative begins in Kings, as I've said, it's not a new beginning at all, because it's just a continuation of the story out of First and Second Samuel. Probably the most significant thing that's happened in the the closing chapters of of Samuel, uh, right there in the middle of 2 Samuel, is that that God makes a promise to David. He says, David, you're always going to have an heir on the throne of Israel. Turn back with me, please, to 2 Samuel, Samuel chapter 7. So from Kings, just back to the previous book, chapter 7, and look at verses 12 to 13. God promises David, when your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I'll raise up your offspring to succeed you, who'll come from your own body. I'll establish his kingdom forever. I'll be his father and he shall be my son. So any informed reader of the Bible enters into 1 Kings with an unanswered question, who's it going to be? God promised David that one of his sons would sit on his throne. Which one of his many sons is it going to be? So chapter one tells us which of the sons it's going to be. Chapter two tells us a little bit of how Solomon, the, 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 the chosen son, uh, begins his reign. So let's very quickly skim through these couple of chapters. Begins with a strange story. If you look there at... 1 Kings 1, the first four verses, really bizarre, wee story uh, to begin uh, a book that's going to be about the the heights of of political power. It's a story about old King David lying in his bed. His his courtiers decide to to bring to his bed a, a young virgin and he's no intimate relations with her. It seems like a really strange story to us but it would actually have been loaded with meaning for for David's court around him. David, and you'll you'll remember this from from what we gathered in the story, David's the kind of guy who in his heyday could go to great lengths to get a beautiful woman into his bed. Well, here's David with a beautiful young woman in his bed, and he's past it. He's not interested anymore. He's lost his virility, And in the culture of that time, that's a a symbol that that David's done. His power is gone. So this one event or or this non-event then quickly leads to another. In verse 5, Adonijah, one of David's sons, picks up the cue. The cue is that David is past it. There needs to be a new king. Adonijah steps in. It's going to be me. Adonijah is the fourth in order of David's sons. Two of David's sons are already dead. The third hasn't been mentioned in the narrative for quite a while. So it's quite likely that he's simply the next in line to the throne. Adonijah does what any smart would-be king in the culture does. He surrounds himself with all the stuff that a king should have. Chariots, horses, regiments of soldiers. And he, he creates a, a coronation banquet, if you like. What happens throughout the rest of the chapter is that uh, Bathsheba, Solomon's mother, and the prophet Nathan get together. They don't want Adonijah to become king. They want Solomon to become king. So they set in motion their, their own processes. They, they confer together, they both approach King David. They both say uh, they both remind him of a, a vow that he's made that Solomon should be king. It's all very ambiguous because that vow's never been mentioned in the narrative before. We're not quite sure if it's, if it's a true vow or not. We're not sure whether the old dottery king has been taken advantage of here or not. It's, it's the typical kind of intrigue that we find in royal courts when power moves from one generation to the next in the end, they convince David that Solomon should be the king. Before long, there's a public coronation ceremony, and Solomon's made king. Now, Adonijah's is immediately in a very precarious position. If you know anything about, about history, pretty much of any culture, uh, when, when a king comes to the throne, the first thing he does is wipe out all his competitors. Adonijah has already set him up, set himself up as king. But it's probably a a moment that reflects very well on Solomon, when at the end of chapter one, rather than taking Adonijah's life, he simply sends him to his house, sends him packing to his home. So that's chapter one, Solomon on the throne. In chapter two, we, we see David not only on his deathbed, but now in his very last moments, He calls Solomon, in the early verses of the chapter, calls Solomon to his bedside and charges him. He tells him, Solomon, listen, if you want your your kingdom to be established, here's what you've got to do. And it's a pretty chilling passage. David encourages Solomon to kill Joab, to kill Shimei, but to show kindness to Barzillai. So one man from David's past is is going to be rewarded, but two men from David's past are are going to be wiped out because they might stand in opposition to to the the new kingdom under Solomon. In verse 12 then we're told that Solomon sat on the throne of his father David and his rule was firmly established. Folks, we need to pay attention to the language of that verse. That, that, that verb there about a throne being established, that's a clear allusion to the wee passage that we just looked up in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Because it talked there about God establishing a throne for David. And here the, that language is being picked up and it's very clear that, that God is the one who's at work here. He's the one establishing This throne. And even Adonijah, Solomon's rival, sees that. Look at verse 15 of chapter 2. He speaks to Bathsheba, Solomon's mother, and he says, The kingdom has gone to my brother, for it has come to him from the Lord. And the last verses of chapter 2 here, they concern themselves with Solomon, him consolidating his position. He simply does what his father told him to do. And in one sense, we could say that these actions, this is what's securing Solomon's kingship. He can be completely secure once he's wiped out all his enemies, all his competitors. But in another sense, Solomon's security has never, ever been in doubt because he's predestined to succeed by a sovereign God. In Daniel chapter 2, verse 2, we read of God as the one who sets up kings and deposes them. And that's the ultimate reality. No matter what it feels like to to the, the human players in the drama. God raises up kings and he puts them down. Simple as that. I want to stall with you for a moment here in the narrative To reflect a little on what's going on here. We've seen old David who sinned plenty during his lifetime. And now he's lying in his bed giving out a hit list. I see David here like an old mafia godfather. Passing on the hit list to his son. These are the guys you've got to watch out for. And we see Solomon go ahead with the murderous instructions and and sign the death warrant for the two men he'd been told to kill but another, his half-brother, for good measure. What kind of a family is this? And more to the point, why is God working through them and with them? Well, if our studies in the, the books of Samuel didn't make it clear, then the opening couple of chapters here of Kings ought to. God didn't work with this family because they were innocent or because they were good. God worked with this family because his grace is, is big enough to allow him to work even with people like this. God works out his purposes through this family not because the first couple of members of this family are are perfect, but because he's chosen this family. There's nothing happening here. Not a single thing outside of the grace and the sovereignty of God. We've got to hear that. If we're running with an overly simplistic idea in our mind that David and Solomon were good guys and that's why God blessed them, We're running with a a Sunday school simplified notion that's not what God's word teaches here. This is probably a good moment to continue thinking about an oversimplification of Solomon's life. There's a simple formula that says Solomon started out good uh, and that he obeyed God and God blessed him. And then somewhere along the line, He he started to disobey God and fell under God's judgment. That formula only works if you're extremely selective in how you read the Bible passages. Solomon was sinful right from the start. If you haven't gathered that yet from chapters 1 and 2, even the opening three verses of of the wonderful chapter 3 still show us more of Solomon's sin. These three verses show us two good things about Solomon, one bad. What's the first thing Solomon does? After he sent out the murder squads in chapter 2, what does he do at the start of chapter 3? Look at verse 1. He makes an alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and marries Pharaoh's daughter. Were you here this morning? Who is Israel's arch enemy? The oppressor of the people of God? Who is it keeps God's people in slavery? Constantly held up as a warning. Do not go back to Egypt. And here we have Solomon. Both literally and metaphorically sleeping with the enemy. We still think Solomon's a good guy. Look at the second problem, verse 2. We're told that he's building his palace and the temple of the Lord. The narrator is telling us a lot here, simply in the order he puts things. Solomon's home, his fancy palace for himself, comes before building a temple for God. He's more interested in his own comfort and luxury than giving his people a place to worship. Solomon's priorities are writ large in that simple little sentence. The good thing that the narrator is able to say about Solomon in verse 3. Is that Solomon showed his love for the Lord. By walking according to the statutes of his father David. Folks these opening verses of chapter 3 then present us with a, a full blown picture of Solomon. He is a man who loves God. He's like his father David in this regard. There's something in him that that, that loves God and wants to live the Godward life. But right at the beginning of his reign, right from day one, he's deeply sinful and flawed. He's not wholehearted. He doesn't love the Lord his God with all his heart and all his mind and all his soul and all his strength. He's a divided person. And it's no wonder that in the end, the kingdom will be divided under Solomon. Folks, I think we're in a better position now to approach this famous Sunday school story. 1 Kings chapter 3, where God gives Solomon wisdom. It's quite an astonishing story, really. God appears to Solomon in a dream and says to him, Ask me for whatever you want me to give you. Isn't that amazing? And it all looks fine, but even if you pay attention to Solomon's words here, we just see more and more of how he he just doesn't get it. Even as he makes this excellent request for wisdom, Solomon shows a really poor grasp of theology. In verse 6, he answers God and he says, You've shown great kindness to your servant, my father David, because he was faithful to you and righteous and upright in heart. You've continued this great kindness to him, And have given him a son to sit on his throne to this very day. Solomon thinks that his family is knowing the blessing of God because they're good guys, because they're righteous, and they're upright in heart. That's David the murderer and the adulterer, that's Solomon the murderer. Folks, David's righteousness and Solomon's righteousness cannot be the explanation of God's blessing on this family. The only explanation, and we've said it before this evening, is God's sovereign grace. God is in control. God's making the decisions. God's putting his people on the throne, and he's blessing them. This incident of God giving wisdom to Solomon. We think of it as the moment where where God gives wisdom, but actually it's probably better understood as the moment where God transforms the wisdom that Solomon already has. He's already a smart guy. If you turn back to chapter 2, verse 6, you'll see David talking to Solomon. He's talking about Joab, and he says, Deal with him according to your wisdom. In chapter 2, verse 9, he speaks of Shimei. And David says, you're a man of wisdom. You'll know what to do with him. Solomon is a smart political leader by anyone's, uh, by anyone's standards. He knows how to get the job done, and he's shown that. He knows how to use power to achieve his own ends and to pursue his own agenda. But what happens in chapter 3 is that God takes him and changes him. For the first time we see in Solomon a godly wisdom. It's a wisdom used for peace rather than for violence. It's for the good of others rather than for himself. And Solomon exercises this wisdom very famously in chapter 3. That story of the the, the baby and the, the the two prostitutes. By the end of the chapter, the narrator gives an unambiguous verdict about Solomon's wisdom. Look at verse 28. When all Israel had heard the verdict the king had given, they held the king in awe, because they saw he had wisdom from God to administer justice. Why does Solomon have wisdom? Because God has given it to him. Solomon's kingship here, we see it for the first time, wonderfully righteous and effective. And it's because he's exercising his kingship under the authority of God. God, and not Solomon, finally is the one in control. Friends, we're pretty much out of time this evening. But before I I conclude, let me urge you to pray for wisdom among our leaders Dan uh, picked up on that that very obvious uh, application of this passage this evening in 1st Timothy 2 Paul urges us that we make requests prayers and intercessions and thanksgiving for everyone for kings and for all those in authority Barack Obama needs the wisdom of the sovereign God So does Gordon Brown. Peter Robinson and Martin McGuinness need it. No one knows how to rule this world. Only God does. Pray that our leaders will be able to to govern in the way that Solomon did discover here, a way not of, of violence, but of grace, a way not for their own agenda, but for the people. That's a biblical prayer to pray. If you're going to pray for leaders, pray too for the leaders in this community. We had a wonderful evening together, the, the Kirk session and their spouses on Friday night. I was just reminded of what a, what a wonderful group of people God has brought into leadership here and how blessed I am to be a part of that. But, but I was struck too of how we, we need God's help. Whenever people ask me from time to time of what they can pray for me, if I don't have a burning specific in that moment, I point them to a more general prayer, but it's a wonderful prayer, very dear to me. It's a prayer that Moses prayed in Exodus chapter 33, verse 13. It's very much like Solomon's here, Solomon's request. Moses prayed, if you are pleased with me, teach me your ways so that I may know you and continue to find favour with you remember that this nation is your people it's a prayer recognising that I don't have a clue how to, to do you any good but I believe that God does and that's a prayer I pray often for my leadership in this place and I pray it for our other leaders too I don't have a clue and I I don't want to lead you in the way that I might choose of my own agenda who knows where that would take us but I want to learn to do this thing that God calls us to and that is to exercise leadership under him would you pray for your leaders here in the church, out beyond, that they would have some measure of the wisdom of God. So we're up and running with the Book of Kings. On the surface, it's going to look like a political history. It's going to tell us about the kings of Israel, their their successes and their failures. And although it's about a lot of different kings, in the end, as Dan told us earlier and and pointed out to us, it's the story of one king, the only true king of the universe, our sovereign God. Everything that we read about in these stories will work out the will of God. Why did God bless David? Because he chose to. Why did Solomon end up on the throne, not Adonijah? Because God chose it would be that way. Why did God grant wisdom to Solomon, even though he's compromised from start to finish? Because in his grace, he chose to work that way. Folks, we live in a world where most things appear out of control. North Korea has atomic bombs. Al-Qaeda work across the world. There's the credit crunch and there's swine flu. There's trying to hold on to your job for another year. There's your health. There's your kids' grades. And there's everything else on top of it. There's plenty in this world to worry about and to to surmise that God is not in control. But tonight, as we've opened God's word, we've re-entered the real world. The world where God speaks to us, tells us who he is and who we are. We've been reminded that despite all appearances, God is in control. Let us pray. Father God, as we read uh, a shambolic passage like this uh, full of murder and intrigue and And so many things that appear to be so far from from your perfect good. Lord, we recognize our own world in it. Lord, we struggle, each one of us, to trust you and to believe that you hold this world in your hand. But we've been in your word this evening. We've heard you. speak to us and show these things to us again. Lord, would you impress them on our hearts? Would you help us to know that these things are true? That you are in control of this world, of its leaders, of our lives and our circumstances. Lord, help us to trust you with all things. And help us to begin to do that even now, here this evening. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.